Dom Chardonnay number one. Breaking the system is not a mistake. Jennifer Walsh in conversation with George Lewis. Hello and welcome to the first edition of Darmstadt on Air, a new series of conversations on music and experiment. My name is Thomas Schäfer and I'm part of the Darmstadt Summer Course team. The Darmstadt Summer Course is a two-week academy and festival for contemporary and experimental musical practices. It's a place where musicians and artists of around 50 nations come and work together, a place of exchange and meeting new people. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it had to be postponed from July 2020 until the summer of 2021. With this podcast, we try to build a bridge between this and next summer by initiating conversations on music and sharing them with you. We've asked some of our academy tutors and guest artists to host a conversation on a subject that is important to them. We start with Irish composer and performer Jennifer Walsh, who met New York-based composer and researcher George Lewis at the Darmstadt Summer Course in 2018. And that's where their discussion on artificial intelligence started after a lecture that Jenny had contributed. They continued their exchange about AI and the artistic approach to it via Zoom on July 14, 2020. We hope you enjoy listening. Hi, George. How are you doing? Hi, Jen. How's it going? I'm all right. I'm in here in London. You're in New York at the I'm moment? I'm in New York. My goodness, yes. <laughs> I know. I think we both have. I think New York and London, we've both been going through a, a, similar, a similar experience between our administrations and their dealings with the pandemic. So, Yeah, you know. we can't decide whether, at least in, at least in our case, it seems there, there's deliberate malfeasance. And so... Uh, You know, the thing is, we're hoping to be, um, uh, we, need, we need a redeemer. We need someone to, we need someone to save us. And uh, there are some unlikely saviors over the past few years. And, but right now, people are just hoping, you know, the guy doesn't get elected again. Because if he does, you know, the virus thing will never end, you know, because he doesn't yeah. want it to end. So yeah. we're all kind of isolated in our little spaces. And, and uh, we'd like to get out, so... I think it's been similar here in that it seems like people just took it into their hands to try and take care of themselves because they felt like the government wasn't doing it. So a lot of people have stuck pretty hard to the lockdown, you know, and still consider that we're living in lockdown and stick to the restrictions simply because they're terrified that the, the government aren't taking the steps that they should be, you know. So it's not the most pleasant way to live. Really. No, where we are, they, uh, we, have, we have a COVID-idiot group. Mm -hmm. And uh, which includes governors of major states and the president of the United States. And they are saying that everything's fine and uh, it's all over. And uh, it's incredible. Just people just lie right in your face and you sit there. And so in New York, at least, uh, people are not buying this. And they seem to be sort of trying to stick with the, with the requirements. Uh, you know, but other places, uh, I'm just amazed that people could say this is... A, You know, they'll put a picture of a woman in a hijab and say, well, if you go for this, you'll, you know, if you go for masking, you'll go for this. So just fighting virus with racism, it doesn't really work. <laughs> so, so I don't know. It's, it's a little scary right now over here. And then we're, we're banned out of most countries, including the UK, without a 14-day quarantine at a minimum. And perhaps maybe not at all. Like, I think for some countries like Europe, we're... They don't care. You just have to stay out. So um, as it turns out, I, there are, I'm supposed to be at the Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin, in Berlin, for um, a year. And so they have exceptions for researchers. And so I am going to go uh, to, to Berlin. But you have to get a special visa and all of that because otherwise uh, you're just banned. And so... so But the thing is, they, what they say is that 10% of the, only about 10% of the American public has a passport, so they don't notice any of that. Okay, that's very interesting. I was, I was in Germany last week, and it was the first time I traveled anywhere since the beginning of the pandemic. 
And I kept saying to people, you live six to seven weeks in the future. I, I, I feel like I'm time traveling. And I'm sure when you go to Berlin, you'll have a similar feeling of, I, of, sort of traveling into to, a different time. I hope it's only six to seven weeks, but I'm afraid we, they might be really ahead of us. We're thinking January, <laughs> depending upon the outcome of the election. It's, it's interesting because one of the things that's really struck me during the pandemic, um, I was looking at Carnegie Mellon have this center called Ideas. I can't remember the exact acronym uh, that the, the word stands for, but they have this uh, COVID misinformation page. Oh. And, it's, it's, and they update it every week and they show you, they just have headlines where they show you every single piece of misinformation that has been printed or not printed, you know, uh, that has been posted online um, and exactly what it refers to. So the reasons that COVID happened, the cures for it, the, you, you know, the way that it's transmitted. They even have a category called um you know, feel good stories that are completely incorrect, that are mostly mm -hmm. stories about animals uh, returning, like, you know, the, the dolphins swimming through Venice, the, you know, or swans coming to a pond they've never come to. But what's really struck me the whole time has been how much misinformation is driven through, has been driven over the last few months, how confused people are, that there really are people that think it's a hoax, that it's yeah. something that the government made up or and and that sort of the social media networks that people are on is sort of at, at times facilitating the spread of this misinformation and pushing it to people and serving them, you know, 5G caused COVID, right. you know, stories and stuff like that. Well, um, my spouse, Mia Masaoka, the sound artist, just sent me an email about how Fugaku, the world's fastest supercomputer, is, is in the Guardian today, apparently, is searching for a coronavirus treatment. And it can perform more than 415 quadrillion computations a second and has already worked out how breath droplets spread. So uh, I think originally we were thinking about chatting about AI. So I'm, I would love to have a computer for my music that... Uh, <laughs> could put out 415 i'll settle for a few extra you know a couple of teraflops but <laughs> but um but it seems as though um that's a subject that uh, is always on everybody's minds right now in, in the good the bad and the ugly of it and and so i don't know you we both have been involved in that for a pretty long time i mean w when did you start getting excited about ai for, um not I excited let me say engaged with <laughs> engage with i mean i i've been i mean i come from a background that sort of my dad worked for ibm hmm. and so i did bits of coding when i was a kid and i sort of was introduced to the idea of thinking like an engineer by my father when i was a kid about solving problems but for a long while then you know when i was a student I was too broke to have a laptop so hmm. you know that that sort of felt far away and then on top of that, I heard a lot of music that was working with algorithms. And a lot of the time I wasn't, it just didn't connect with me mm -hmm. the way that, that I wanted to be connected with. And so it's really in the last 10 years or so, I just became really fascinated by the topic. And I started reading a lot about it. I started um, contacting people that had nothing to do with music to try and learn about it going to, you know, machine learning meetups in London where I'm the only person in the room that doesn't work for a startup, you, you know, or something like this. Um, and just sort of trying to learn. And for me, there was this like really like early on when I became interested in it, I was teaching at Brunel University at that point, And some of the particle physics people knew that I was interested in AI and they sort of got in contact with me. So I was more likely to talk to those people about it than to talk to people within the music department. And that's no criticism mm. of the music department. It's just my interests. But up to a certain point, it felt a little bit like I didn't quite know how I could engage with it because um, I, 
I don't do MIDI. You know, I'm a singer. So, so that's, you know, my main route into improv is is not just singing, but also extended vocal techniques. So they don't fit into, you know, uh, equal tempered tuning or things like that. And so it, it felt like I was like, I can't quite figure out how I sort of found my way into it. And in the last sort of four years since Google came or DeepMind came out with WaveNets, um, it began to I began to see like a way that I my voice could sort of connect with this more concretely um, where the computations were happening to raw audio rather than MIDI files. Do you know? Because because you I know you were you must have been what your late 20s, early 30s when you were in Aircam doing projects like Rainbow Family. Like how did how did you find your way into it? Well, you know, there were no laptops, you know, I didn't really, <laughs> I mean, I didn't have a lot of money myself, uh, but I was, you know, out of college at least. I, we used to talk about getting a computer all the time in the early 70s, you know. I mean, there was no, we didn't, I don't think I even really knew what a computer was. I, I remember I went to a pretty fancy grade school in high school. And they had us, they, they would take us to the computer room every now and then. There'd be this giant mainframe and, and they had us doing Fortran with punch cards. So I wasn't very good at that. So I thought the whole thing was going to be not, I sort of lost interest in it. And then when, after being involved with the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, you know, um, talking with people like Douglas Ewart about that, and and then made it, meeting uh, David Wessel. David Wessel is a very important figure for a lot of us in computer music world, which I'm kind of a part of. Um, so it, originally a mathematical psychologist, but also a drummer, and he had played with you know people like Cecil Taylor and Roscoe Mitchell, and he was very closely involved with people in the ACM. And then he got this big job at Earcom as uh, as the pedagogy director. And so the whole thing about IRCOM and Max MSP and all that, it basically comes from David snookering Boulez into accepting it, you know? And, <laughs> and that turned out to be great because it turned out to be one of the major developments in that field, which was making an interactive platform that was community. While it wasn't open source, that came later when Miller Puckett, who was one of the original... Max people um, got made PD, which you know, pure data, or as he called it, public domain. Um, so, um, but before, which works a lot like Max MSP. But the whole idea, my Rainbow Family that you talked about, became before that, which became in '84. But around about '77, a lot of people were buying single board computers called Kims, Kim One. Especially there was a very important group in uh, Northern California, the Bay Area, and they called themselves the League of Automatic Music Composers. You know, it was um, Tim Perkis, Rich Gold, uh, John Bischoff, uh, Jim Horton, uh, and David Behrman, who's been an important mentor and colleague of mine, was also involved with them. And so that's where I started. I went to a, I went to a rehearsal of these people, and they were just sitting around you know, listening to computers and the computers were playing the music and it sounded like improvised music. I said, well, wow, I'd like to do this. <laughs> so, so 250 bucks, which was for me a lot of money as an itinerant musician, you got a, you got a board and three big manuals that were written in uh, computerese. Uh, the word byte was not in the dictionary. So you had to know what that kind of meant. And so there was a community of people just like there is now, but because it'll be smaller, who could help you, you know, they leave bits of code on your answer phone, or they would, um, you know, you get together with people. But all these things of today with the deep learning, I mean, look, they hadn't even invented neural nets. So, so we were um, doing concerts, you know, wherever we could with these small machines. I built, they were very small, it's like an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. I built mine into a suitcase with a power, not a suitcase, a briefcase with a power supply. So I remember going through UK customs with it. And the guy said, what's this? He had all these wires and crap coming out of it. No candy. So he opened it up. He's, what's well, a computer? He's a 
what? What does it do? <laughs> I said, well, it plays music, but it's not hooked up right now. I said, what can you do with it right now? I said, well, you can play tic-tac-toe with it. <laughs> so show me that. So, so I showed him, and they let me through. So, but yeah, those, but always for me, the idea was somehow that the machines would, I mean, the, would, would be playing the music, and they would be, first, the idea of responding to what the outside world people were doing. And, and once again, this is pre-MIDI. So you're, we're in the same position as you, but on the, on the front end, there's no MIDI. So how do you make sound? Um, you connect the thing to synthesizers through various electronic means, uh, analog to digital converters, uh, you know, trigger wires of different kinds. Later, there were things like modular synths. I was able to connect the thing up to that. The computers got a little more sophisticated and then there weren't single board anymore. But laptops, man, that's like way in the future. So um, uh, I'm trying to think, when did I have a first laptop? Probably around the, the power books, the first power books. Was that the 90s? Anyway, so I was into it for a long time by then. Uh, but the goal was always the same and started reading a lot of books on AI, you know. Um, you know, uh, you know, they had a bunch of stuff, Roger Shank and Marvin Minsky and, uh, and then going to Earcom. I know Todd Macover was a friend of Marvin Minsky, so, so I, we got to go to his house and stuff and talk to him about things. And he loved music. He was a musician. And he was, he called himself an improviser. Mm -hmm. So, and he, and there's a lot of his improvisations are on the web now. You can hear them. I mean, they're great. You know, he really is a great player, you know, as an improviser. He loved music. He always had a lot of keyboards around his house. And um, so you had people like that who were interested in improvisation. But Marvin wasn't, he wasn't entirely convinced that you could, you could get a computer to improvise. So uh, that, took a, that took a little bit of doing. And it was like a challenge, you know, that Marvin didn't think was possible. So I thought, well, maybe, you know, I could try it. Why not? I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting that, like, improv is the focus. Because I think what really, for me, even conceptually, even before I was able to, like, do projects, what really got my brain really, really excited was the idea that there would be something I would be interacting with that would be making decisions that I couldn't predict. Yeah. Do you know, and that there's this, that there's this different way of interacting because I know for me as an improviser, I really like playing with lots of different people and I'm really happy to, to change the way that I play when I play with different people. I know some mm -hmm. people don't do that, you, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, but, but I'm actually quite happy and I'm and I'm happy to sort of see different spaces that open up for me when I play with with, you know, different people. And so with the idea for me of being able to interact with a system that I don't know exactly what it's going to do, do you know, and that that this idea that of what neural nets can give us that, you know, there will be these these sort of black box decisions that we're not entirely sure why the results came out the way that they did. That uh, was always what was interesting to me. And, and as a result, that's, that's something that improvisers are interested in. Whereas I know a lot of the researchers who get into AI, they're interested in being able to replicate certain genres or being able to, you know, being able to get a, a system that's going to write Bach chorales that sound like Bach, but, you know, are new, are, are different or something like that. So, I, so I'm, I'm curious. So was improv always the main focus for you with it? Well, it was, I mean, I was doing improvisation. The, auto, the League of Automatic Music people, they were doing improvisation. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, they, I don't want to speak for them. I'll just say from my standpoint, improvisation was really what artificial intelligence should have been all about. You know, I mean, just, and the only, the person that's, the, of the stuff I had read, the Roger Shank stuff was the most interesting in terms of I could see how that would be connected with improvisation. You know, this sort of conceptual dependency notation, as he called it, where there are, there were these 14 primitives that was you tried to he tried to this, he did a pretty good job of describing a lot of the everyday things you would do in terms of what he called it a trans like music would be like improvising would be abstract transfer of information. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. could describe a lot of different circumstances in terms of this very simple notation. And then I found out later that Myron Kruger, I met him in Canada at Banff, I think it was. 
and he was using it to make his early interactive installations where the and the, and which was pretty amazing because I, I don't think he expected to find a Roger Shank head there <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was very influential on me because I saw first of all he what he would do is the, people would come you've seen these and he invented that term artificial reality which comes before virtual reality as a term and so the the he you would be there there'd be something on a screen the viewer would come to the screen and start doing things and the idea was you would, it was like almost like a game a little bird would be jumping around and then you could stick out your hand the little bird would go on your hand and then you could do different things but you were the one that was improvising the situation you didn't know what you were going to be doing you didn't know what the bird was going to be doing but the difference i found it was the bird did plausible things I found out in working with computers, it was easy to get the computers to do unpredictable things. What was hard to get it to do was things that you didn't know were going to happen. But after they happened, you said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, so that was a little bit more difficult to do. And so I've been trying to make different strategies for doing that. I've never used neural nets. Might get around to it uh, pretty soon now. And, you know, as I reach my years of dotage before I get there, I'll have something going. Um, Maybe. And we're working right now on a on a project to make a virtual zebra finch with a wonderful researcher here, Julia Highland Bruno, who's a postdoc in our Columbia, um, uh, what is it called? A Presidential Scholars Scholars in Society and Neuroscience. And she works on she works on zebra finch song. And, and her notion of it is that basically the best way to describe what they do is that they're improvising. Mm-hmm. And so because a lot of things that people normally try to explain is about bird behavior. You know, they're not looking for a mate. They mate for life. You know, they're not that worried about getting food. They don't, they don't seem to fight that much. And so they're, you know, they're, they're in a situation where why do they do these things? And, they, and what they do is they do it the way a lot of musicians do. They have a certain kind of core song that they sing. And, they, and then they sort of make variations on that. So we're making a virtual bird, me and my associate Damon Holsborn, we're making a virtual bird right now. And, you know, it's our first iteration should be ready maybe in August or something, uh, pretty soon actually because we've been working on it for a while. But it's always that, once again, the theory would be, you know, it's easy to get unpredictability. What's plausibility, retrospective plausibility is harder to attain. So that's what, we, that's what I've been working on for a really really long time, I guess 40 years. I looked at I looked at it and I said, God, if I'm really working on this for 43 years, I really can't believe it. I should be further along for all that work. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because when you're talking about the birds and making a virtual bird, because to me, trying to like my interest in AI has always been literally I want an intelligence that feels like it's something different, that feels like it is actually a different type of intelligence to the intelligence that I am used to being around. And I know for me, like animals are a path towards that, do, do you know, like is, is because when you interact with an animal, you know, you're not sure, like you might talk to a dog and think the dog understands. Like I remember my my sister has a friend and she has a seeing eye dog. And my sister said the dog can count in Irish. Wow. And, you know, and, and I said, really? And and she said, yeah, if if they put the food in the bowl and they say, you know, hain, do, tree, the dog, the dog understands on tree it can go. And I said, but <laughs> but I said, but does the dog understand that like a hain, a do, a tree is a different language to one, two, three? Or does the dog just understand it's a different it's the same command, but it's it has a slightly different sound. You, you, you know, the, the cognition is not the same. And um I I put in an application once for a huge art grant, which I did not get, where I wanted mm. to live in a studio with songbirds. And oh. I wanted to try and develop a language together with the birds and see what would happen. You know, if we were there for months upon end and I'm at times singing with the birds or singing to them, but at times just working on my own work, which means I'm singing or I'm making sounds and and to see what would happen. And, you know, what I've noticed is that, like, since then, I've done that project, but it's easier to get funding to do it with AI than it is to get funding to do it with, you know, with live creatures. But it's the same thing. It's about spending time with another type of intelligence, however meager or however primitive, and seeing what happens and seeing what 
how 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 even I start to understand my own intelligence. Because you're saying you you think about uh, retrospective plausibility. Mm. You know, one of the things that I found is, God, if you want to know your own weird, terrible habits and ruts and tricks, like improvise with an AI and it just spits them back at you pretty rapidly. You know, and <laughs> sort of you learn a lot about yourself very, very quickly, you, you know, in those sort of situations. Yeah, no, I can't. Yeah, that, that's been my experience. I, I you know, I wrote an article a few years ago called Living with Creative Machines. And that's what you reminded me of when you said that. Because, you know, there is people like David Rothenberg. I, I went with him and we played in the with the birds in the Bronx Zoo aviary. And then he's been doing these things with humpback whales. He, we, he published an article in our Oxford Handbook of Critical Improvisation Studies. But it seems to me that, you know, the AI thing, the project has always been in some sense about trying to, well, until recently that is, it's become kind of, it, there is something about it. People were interested in it, certainly in Marvin's, you know, sort of founding generation or Shank or those people. They were interested in it because it was a window into what it meant to be human. Exactly. They weren't just yeah. trying to make gadgets and stuff. So yeah. now it's more about, I mean, maybe it's, and I think that what happens when they think about to me, like the perf the my model of a great improviser is the Mars rover, or a great improvising problem is the self-driving car. And mm -hmm. in order to do these things, you do have to. There's an ethnographic or ethnomethodological component to it, or it seems to me that there should be. And being no expert on it, uh, I've always felt that. Well, on the baleful side, there are these uh, land and air drones that are also uh, like self-driving cars, land drones that can, you know, kill you on command and and they can operate automatically and find their targets, so-called, and all that. And there's, so there's an ethical part of it as well. And I was very surprised. I went to a conference at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and they started talking about these drones. And I said, well, like, you know, a lot of these ideas you've been talking about, about subjectivity and ethics, the computer music people have been dealing with this for 30 years in terms of their interactive stuff. They said, what, who? <laughs> you know? So it might be a question of like trying to bring sort of the humanistic impulses of musical communication with AI, stuff you've experienced, stuff I've experienced, other people like, you know, Nick Collins at Durham, you know, people like that. And to bring that out into a wider world in which these kinds of issues are are being discussed, because my fear is that AI becomes something that becomes detached from the human. Yeah. And it becomes something that allows the commodification of the human. And then at that point, we lose track of why we were doing it in the first place and why improvisation was crucial to the entire adventure. And this is why I'm wondering, just I don't want to filibuster here, but I'm wondering when people do these things where they say, well, I play into the thing and it spits back a version of me. Well, that's not how my stuff works. <laughs> it never has. <laughs> I, you know, I construct personalities. And so Rainbow Family's personality is different from Voyager's personality or from Roberto Morales's, uh, you know, uh, machines. And so when they play together, even without people involved, you see there's a different, there's the play of difference is there. So I'm not sure I see that same kind of notion of exploring personality, exploring humanism, exploring difference. Not sure I see that in just having something that can reproduce existing things. Because that's one of the biggest problems with AI and music is how do you know if it's really intelligent? I mean, is intelligence just, you know, re recording a carload of stuff and spitting it back out? That sounds like, that sounds more like commodification than anything else to me. But if you got something that's really playing something that you don't really know, is this real? Is this something that makes sense? Uh, where the question has to be asked in the same way as it was asked about, I don't know, us. Are we doing anything that Jen Walsh is out there? What the hell is she doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, or George Lewis, what is that? <laughs> and at that point, you're really dealing with the possibility of, well, is this really intelligent behavior or is it just crazy noise making? <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's it's very interesting you talk about drones and because and self-driving cars, because I see a, like, you know, they have they're sort of they do these ethics studies about uh, what they call trolley problems. So, you know, you have a self-driving car and there's like a lady with a stroller or, you know, a businessman. And who should the car, you know, who should they swerve to hit? Who, who, you know, what decisions should the car make? And what struck me is that even when humans start to talk about those problems, they 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 result in endless conversation, endless discussion, you know, endless reasoning about if you if you sort of introduce these problems to people, everybody has a different opinion, mm-hmm. and it's not easy. And people say, well you know, but but what if this person was older or what if that person was suffering from cancer and they only have a short amount of time to live and, and you start to see like the humans sort of explode with with um, stories and projections and ideas and all this sort of detritus, psychological detritus from every person they've ever known gets projected. And that's where it becomes interesting. Like like to me, humans talking about those problems is far more interesting than how they'll be coded into the car because you start to see how humans view people and how they view life and things like that and i certainly think for me the projects that i've been excited by in ai have been the projects where it's not simply a project to replicate something that already exists and just make more of it because that to me is that i suppose i view that as not dangerous but just it's this continued reification of a canon as Mm. if the only thing that's ever worth making is just making more of the canon and and built into the canon, we have all the problems of biases and historical disenfranchisement and everything like that. So this sort of interacting with this weirdness, that's much more that that to me seems like a much more fruitful area. And I suppose artists want to go artists naturally gravitate or perhaps artists that think similar to the way you might think or I might think would gravitate naturally to that messy place where it's a bit confusing, you know, whereas people who want to make an app need to know that it's going to do exactly what it's, you know, what it's supposed to do rather mm-hmm. than have, have an, un, an unpredictable response or something like that. Well, that's why I haven't really sent Voyager out in the world to be part Even of Even though it's so- called Voyager. Yeah, it doesn't voyage into the free software community. Um, mm-hmm. Although, it, you know, I don't sell it either, but I don't distribute it. And part of, the, part of the reason is that there is this tendency to treat things as being commodified apps that will do. You know, a lot of people don't want their computers to improvise or they're not interested in that kind of like messy response. They, mm-hmm. Then they have this idea, it's going to do what I have in my head. And the thing is actually built to do what's in its, in its head. And so... Because of that, um, you know, I've been accused of exactly what you said. People say, well, why are you playing with computers and not with people? I mean, you have all these people here. We don't need a computer that improvises. And so what I, my standard answer these days, which I didn't have an answer at first, was that, you know, I've learned a great deal about improvisation to the stage where I've been able to develop some theoretical bases for what I think improvisation is or what, it's, what, is, what are the conditions under which it can exist. You know, um, that um, that come out of computers, but which uh, could be applicable to just about any organism or even any non-organic organism that does certain things. Mm-hmm. The other the other thing I was thinking about what you said about all those, you know, what happens with the trolley problem, or there's so many that like that, um, is that the technology. Um, and I wrote this quite a long time ago, an article in Voyager in 2000, um, the technology reflects the culture that produced it. So if that culture is all, let's say, white guys, for example, who have a certain class range and a certain set of uh, experiences, um, it's going to look like that, act like that. And so this is why, this is why you have the massive failure of, um, of face recognition programs. Face recognition programs, which uh, which always view black people as criminals, <laughs> are the descendants of those old things they put in the paper every now and then. Every 10 years, they'd say, a computer has discovered the perfect face, and it would be this very bland, pale face. And it's, and so the descendants of those people may, built, built, built the, their biases into their programs, and so they've actually convicted people on the basis of these things. And so this is where we start to get into 
you know, George Floyd territory about AI. You start to think, well, um, was this guy who killed him and who killed all those other, and the people who killed all those other people and the people who threatened everybody I know many times, including me. I mean, it's, I can't, I first started experiencing this kind of thing when I was nine years old, you know, asking a nine year old for big fat policeman, asking a nine year old for ID on the streets of Chicago. Are you kidding me? I mean, (laughs) so, um, and it's not just in the U S either. It's quite international as we find out. Um, so technology, uh, technologies that operate in that way are going to replicate the dangerously so the same sorts of biases that produce this Derek Chauvin or Chauvin and many others. So that's why I'm thinking that, you know, music, at least AI and music and AI and the arts could be a way of countering that. Um, I don't know. I mean, have you been have have you been looking at these kinds of these recent events too? I mean, it's been of course. I mean, I think that I what I think is interesting about about neural nets that's that's different is that you have to have a corpus of data to train it on, and and it really wants the the networks want so much data. They're so hungry. You, you know, they want a huge data set. And the problem is that if somebody makes a data set and that data set is absolutely packed with racist biases, probably nobody will discover them and nobody will remove them for a very long time because it's because the the researchers want to get their hands on that data set and they don't have enough money to make a new one. So mm. I take, for example, like uh, Trevor Paglin's work on ImageNet, where, mm. you know, you have this data set that everybody at Stanford is using to do all of their image training mm. and all and the tags are insanely racist and and, mm. and often incredibly sexist as well. Mm. And these were all done on Amazon Mechanical Turk. It was just using regular human beings, you know, paying them probably like one cent a tag. You know what I mean? To say who they thought was in that photograph or what was contained within that image. And the image data set is really sexist, but nobody really racist and sexist, but nobody's really dug into it. And, and like gone through every image and checked it because they're just really happy that they have this image data set that's, re- that's tagged really precisely and can be used, you know, to train networks. And it's not until an artist comes along and actually digs into the data set and starts to find some of these things that now they're finally, um, they're, now they're finally revising that data set and removing and removing the bias. And again and again and again, mm-hmm. AI corpuses are for corpi, I'm not sure what the correct... Corpuses, I guess, I don't know. Corp- corpuscles. Know. <laughs> corpuscles. Uh, but, the, but the corpuscles are loaded with bias. And that bias could be very simply what's available from a website that has MIDI files. It could just be as simple as that. And it can be right up through, um, you know, uh, people labeling uh, photographs with very, very racist epithets um, or comparing certain races to like animals and things like that when they do the image tagging. Um, So I'm, one of the things when I talk to my students about AI is I say to my students, like even, you don't even need to be able to learn how to code but if you were going to like train an AI to say write a piece of text, what would be the training corpus that you would that you would put together? That there can even be artists can be even invested in terms of like designing a corpus and yeah. thinking like if we wanted to make a corpus, like how could we make a corpus that was interesting? And I think about recently um OpenAI released this jukebox, this OpenAI jukebox, and it mm-hmm. was sort of amazing because they were generating pop songs as raw audio with lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is just, this is next level stuff, as my students would say. But I went through their, I went through the entire list of artists that they had, um, they had produced, you know, pieces in the style of Frank Sinatra, in the style of, you know, whoever. Mm. And I went through and I thought, okay, I'm Irish. And so I'm interested in who are the Irish artists that they used, do you know? And because you think, well, of course, you too must be in there. You know, Enya must be in there. And I went through, but the the group of artists is completely bizarre and doesn't make any sense. Mm. And if you said to an Irish person, you know, put together a list of the 200 best Irish pop songs that have ever been written. 
you, you know, it wouldn't include half the artists. And, and, and you just, and so I suppose that's what I notice is that the, is that I, when I see papers and people say, oh, we trained it on X or Y, it often tends to be whatever we could scrape off YouTube or, you know, so I saw, I saw Sander Dieleman, fantastic researcher, and he said, oh, yeah, when we made Piano Transformer, we scraped YouTube mm. and we just took all the solo piano music from YouTube. And it turns out that most of the solo piano music on YouTube is Chopin. <laughs> and you know and i thought that's a really interesting thing like what's that about why is that like why did it end up that way and so i think that like as artists if we engage with it even a little bit all these interesting questions come to the fore immediately and 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 immediately bias and everything to do with every single intersectional level of 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 oppression you can think of comes to the fore immediately you know, when, like when you engage with this stuff. It's all going to be there and it's all going to come out in the, in the work. And so that's where you have trouble. Uh, there was a very interesting, uh, the last Darmstadt, uh, Björn Gottstein got together with Nick Collins and created this thing called the AI Curator. And what it did was he, he put together, he trained it on a corpus of piano music, uh, half by men and half by women. And sort of the project was to, to see if there was anything, could the software kind of tell the difference? And so, um, you know, they, and they played different pieces of piano music to it and it gave its judgment. And its judgment would vary wildly. It would just sort of, the needle would switch and jump masculine, feminine, whatever, whatever. Or, and it had other kind of, I don't remember the exact, all the parameters that it did. So we played it Voyager playing the piano, which I have a lot of those around. And, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, it was kind of an interesting thing because there was no third term for uh, is it a machine? And uh, first of all, <laughs> and so, and in my case, I build these things so that they really shouldn't sound like machines. They should announce their, they should announce a biological provenance, which is totally fake. But the reason for announcing that is so they can be compatible in the world that the people are in. Um, rather than being, they can be different in other ways. There's so many ways in which they're different because of, they play in a certain way that's different from what the other people play. But at the same time, they're listening to the other people and trying to collaborate with them so that you feel connected somehow. It's not that you should, I don't, you, difference is already present. So what you try to do is the, the improvisers are reaching out. So why can't the computer reach out? So, but this was just a piano version of it. But I mean, we've already had we've already had Microsoft Tay, the racist chatbot that got uh, you know the whole thing with uh, it got co-opted by the right wing and started spewing Nazi drivel out and so on. They had to take it offline, um, but who knows where it is now? Maybe there's a version of it where it's training the next generation of white nationalists. I really don't know. I mean, so so it it's, it comes down to the fact that anytime you and this is something I've been writing about in a different sphere. I did a New York Times article on uh, lifting the cone of silence on black composers. And it seemed to me, I, was, I, I didn't use Darmstadt as a direct example, but I did write an article in the on curating series on curating contemporary music. And uh, it, it talked about the GRID initiative of 2016, where they discovered that like something like 7% of the commissions, a very low number, uh, and, and, and docents and so on were women, okay, over the past 72 years. Well, in that same 72 years, there are exactly three performances by black composers. So, so that's a hugely low number. So what that does is that feeds a certain image of what the field is. And us real intelligences take that and say, well, I guess this is how the field is. And so there's, so they're all, and in the meantime, so I did it at Darmstadt, I did a four hour viewing and listening room in which I presented a loop of like 40 Afro-Diaspora composers, which I felt were, could have been compatible. They could have been programmed at Darmstadt, but they weren't. And Darmstadt, we don't want to jump on them. It's not like, it's not like they were an anomaly. It's just, that was just how the field has been. And so that's like the corpus that we're training ourselves on. 
And so that's the field is being trained on that corpus. So now we need a new corpus along, which is much more diverse and includes women and includes people of color. And so that's something that's being brought up by the George Floyd protests around the world is that we need a new corpus in all kinds of fields now because yep. we've been trained on this spurious corpus, which is actually hurting us and is not preparing us for the 21st century and uh, is actually doing great harm to uh, vulnerable populations. I, I think it's, I mean, it's, you, I think these problems, I know there's like a lot of people doing sort of decolonizing AI work and sort of feminine, like data feminism and, and sort of different people like trying to get in there and like, like talk about the fact that like the algorithms are often biased because they're coded that way or they're fed by they're fed data that's already biased. So they just copy the data. Mm. And, you know, I, and, and I think like these problems that we're seeing everywhere where these problems that people are finally talking about, which is that many people go to these festivals or go to these concerts and look in the program book and don't see don't see a person that they feel, you know, is like themselves. Do you know they don't they don't see a person where they feel like, you know, like I've I've had many, 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 many concerts where I'm the only woman in the program. Do you know, and you feel like the odd person out or somebody makes a smart remark about like why you were programmed or something like that. Do, do you know what I mean? As sure. if you didn't, you didn't, you know, you, you didn't get there on your own skills or something like that. And I have had to grow a very, very thick skin and I'm white, at least in these contexts. Do, do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so at least mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not, there's not that extra level um, of oppression that I'm dealing with. And I think that like my the the project my students are going to do for next semester is we're going to talk very very concretely about what sort of what sort of curriculum do we want to establish that we feel that it can be a project it can be an artistic project right. that's in flux and is changing and 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 is always up for grabs but that means that everybody can have a stake in it and everybody can have a claim to it and we can listen to i've listened to an awful 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 lot of mediocre music through the years do you know what I mean? By people of the right gender or the right, mm -hmm. you know, I'm using this in horrible scare quotes, you know, the correct uh, gender or the correct skin color. So I think that I would like to listen to more music by by other people. And I'm sure there's a lot of there's uh, the argument that often my students say, you know, or I've had with students is that they'll say, you know, we have to have music and we can only only um, program it if it's of the highest possible quality. And and I say to them, but I've listened to loads of music that's mediocre through the years. Do, do you know what I mean? So we're not already. Do, do you know what I mean? You're you're sure. you're living in a world where you think that everything that's programmed is only programmed on a quality on on quality, whereas a lot of the music that is programmed is programmed simply because of somebody's privilege. Do, do you know? And that allowing them access into a certain space alongside stuff that's programmed because people like it. You know. Yeah, yeah, and quality is synchronic. I mean, you know, a lot of stuff that was considered poor quality later on turns out to be part of some canon or other. So uh, yeah. it's not decisions are not being made only on that basis. And if they are, it's, it's momentary. There are a lot of other bases in which these things get done. And, and the sooner people realize that quality or an inclusion is a spurious uh, binary, then uh, or quality or diversity, then they can get rid of that and they can find room for themselves or they can find they can find a new identity for themselves that is inclusive and is diverse, uh, which is what I'm looking for for the field of classical music or contemporary music. We're looking for that sense in which we, we don't have to make a choice where we can have all the quality we want uh, while also having all these other people who've been kind of kept out. And so that's not going to be as hard to do as people think because there's a lot of great stuff around already. They just have to like pull their head out of that space and then look around and, and, and think, of, think of these other people as being like them. Mm -hmm. Right now mm -hmm. it's been like the, gra the great other, like the Afro-diasporic yeah. other is one very important lacuna or mm -hmm. the idea that there's actually no one there. One of my great students, Dana Reason, coined the term myth of absence about the, mm -hmm. to talk about the, the idea that the reason why we don't see many people feeling, people saying the reason why we don't see many uh, women improvisers is because there weren't any. 
<laughs> so, so that kind of thing. So that kind of myth of absence is also true of other populations as well. And so, but to me, it all comes down to who is a subject in the discourse, who is considered to be a, a full human in those discourses. And so we have to expand those categories. And I think it can be done. And I think the AI conversation is one of those that helps us to figure that out if we can if we can draw those kinds of lessons from it in terms of really getting a new corpus out there, you know? Yeah. I think I think the thing is at times it's daunting because it's so much work. And I remember the I remember a couple of years ago, um, two guys, Bob Sturm and Bob, uh, Bob Stern and Oded Ben David, and they were doing some, they were doing, um, they offered to to train a network they had on some text of, mm-hmm. of mine. And, and I said to them, well, what's your corpus? And I think it was like the Bible, Ovid's Metamorphoses. Again, it was what was free, you know, mm-hmm. what was in the public domain and the, t- the TXT files had been cleaned up and, you know, everything worked. And I said, well, I'd like to make my own corpus. <laughs> and so I built this, I built this corpus and it took, you know, a good bit of time to, to get all the texts, to clean them up, to get them into the right format. And it had like uh, Donna Haraway and Mary Shelley. It was this sort of feminist feminist occultist corpus like mm. it had loads of sci-fi people and irish writers and and i and then it broke their system you know and so <laughs> you just think yeah i went to all that trouble you know and i broke their system and they were like we don't know what's wrong um but but these like I, and i think that's the thing is that is that it's i can understand why it's so much easier to say well this data set it works it's you know we cleaned it up it, it's not going to break the system but i think that it's worth trying to break the system or it's worth trying to make something new even if it sort of breaks the system because in the process of making it you feel excited and hopeful do you know what i mean there's a way to like to engage even though it seems exhausting as well because you think like it would just be nice to have a corpus that worked that that we didn't have to keep remaking it but but that's something i don't know i think that that students can get energized by you know that they can feel there's like something new and there's there's new possibilities even if we do even if we do end up making mistakes along the way or you know uh, crashing the crashing the network well uh, breaking the system is not a mistake <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I love the I love the larger metaphor of Donna Haraway or Angela Davis or somebody breaking the system. Yeah, <laughs> and so maybe that's what I want to do, or maybe that's what you want to do. And we're and you did it. You broke the system, so you broke a much larger system than just their system. And so that's what that's when it gets to be interesting is when you can sort of expose the underpinnings of that, and everyone learns from it. And um, and from there, we start to think, I wonder what other systems need breaking around here. There's looks like there's a lot of a lot of dodgy stuff here. Let's see what we can do about it. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. We've been going on for a fair amount of time. We we but we might we, you know that we got to a lot of places and, you know, two of us, we could talk all day, you know. We both exactly. come from traditions where people do a lot of talking. So, <laughs> <laughs> very oral traditions. <laughs> um, I, and I think I think ending where we're breaking. I think ending with breaking the system is the is a good place. It's a fine place to end. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, 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 Jen. This was fantastic. Thank you. Thanks very much, this. George. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Okay. Three. Thank <laughs> you.